Bienvenidos, I'm your host Lore, and this is Creepy Chisme. Warning, some stories and information on Creepy Chisme may be triggering and are not suitable for all, especially young children. Please listen with caution. Thank you. Hola, mi gente. Gracias for tuning in again. Me and my Spanglish. <laughs> Welcome back. Please forgive me. I'm going to get right to the point. I did not put up Freaky Friday Cheese last week, and I didn't realize it until like six in the evening, and it was already too late. Now, I had an idea, and I even think I started recording it. But I never finished, and I'm so sorry. That's my fault. There is a lot going on, I've told you. If you work in a school, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There is so much going on, so much to do, and then they throw, like, uh, the way you describe it is, you see the finish line. You're almost there. You're about to win. And then somebody throws mud at you, and then somebody else throws water at you, and then somebody pulls your shirt. Like, that's how it feels as a teacher getting to the end of the school year, and especially this school year. <laughs> so please forgive me. I'm doing my best, y'all. And like I said, summer, I'll be popping out episodes left and right. Get excited, y'all. Summer 2021, creepy <laughs> I would like to say, Feliz Dia de las Madres. I'm recording this on May 10th, which is Mother's Day in Mexico. So to all you lovely mamas out there, happy Mother's Day. Hope you had a nice relaxing day. Of course, I know here in the States we have to work, so it's not really a relaxing day unless you took the day off, which now that I think about it, a lot of people called off today. <laughs> but anyway, happy Mother's Day, especially to my mom, to my tias, my cousins, all y'all great women, and to all the fur moms like me. I even have a shirt that says dog mom because she's my little baby <laughs> and I love her and she acts just like a child. She's so bad too. <laughs> so yes, happy Mom's Day, everybody. All right, I have a very good story. One of the most famous stories. We're not talking murder today. Can you believe it? As I was writing this out, I was like, wait, nobody's dying. Nobody's being killed. And there's a happy ending, maybe. Depends on how you see it. So today we're going to get a little mysterious. You ready? Now, I heard this story most likely as a child on Unsolved Mysteries, but I'm not really sure. It had to be Unsolved Mysteries or Discovery Channel, one of those channels. Now, this is the story of D.B. Cooper. Oh, yeah. And if you don't know that name, you're about to know. <laughs> so, D.B. Cooper, we are... Okay, so I, d I will admit this. This was a listener request a while back on Facebook group, which you all should go and join. Fellow listener Joseph, 
who we all know is my buddy, requested this when I asked you guys if you had any ideas or favorite cases or favorite mysteries or murders, whatever. And the name stuck out only because, like I said, I've heard this name and I know the basics of the story, but wow, as as I researched the story, there was a lot I didn't know. A lot. Now, the story I know and the story you might know is man hijacks plane, wants money, gets money, disappears off the plane, nobody knows what happened to him. No trace left behind, right? That's the story I know, but we about to get into it, y'all, and it's good. So grab onto your seats and let's dive into the story of D.B. Cooper. It's the day before Thanksgiving, November 24th, 1971. This is one of the most infamous aviation crimes ever committed. One of, not the most, because there's been worse. But definitely, I agree, it is the most mysterious. An unidentified man boarded the Northwest Orient Flight 305 from Portland, Oregon, to Seattle, Washington. He was a very tall man in a suit, and his alias that he gave before getting on the flight was Dan Cooper. I'll I'll get into it later, like where DB comes from, but yes, his name was actually Dan Cooper. On board the flight, there were 36 passengers and six crew members. When Cooper got on board, He sat in the last row closest to the flight attendants near the back. He even ordered himself a drink and seemed very relaxed. So he's very relaxed. The flight attendants say that, yes, he was very, he was, didn't seem like he was going to hijack a plane pretty much. But soon as the flight took off, Cooper wasted no time because he gave a handwritten note to a flight attendant by the name of Florence Schaffner. When she opened the note, it said, quote, Miss, I have a bomb here, and I would like you to sit by me, end quote. So she does as the note says, and when she sits next to Cooper, he opens a briefcase that he has been carrying, and inside she sees sticks of dynamite. So Cooper tells her that he wants some demands met. Now, his demands were as follows. First, he wanted $200,000 by 5 p.m. that evening in cash. Second, he wanted the money put in a knapsack. Third, he wanted two back parachutes and two front parachutes. And when they landed, he wanted a a fuel truck ready to refuel the jet. Now, in 1971... $200,000 was equivalent to what today would be just a little over $1 million. Now, why did he need four parachutes? Well, this is actually pretty genius. Apparently, the man asked for four parachutes because if one had been tampered with, he had the others to rely on, so he made it seem as though he might take four hostages. Not four. Sorry, my math is off. I'm only in third grade. (laughs) Three. So he wanted to make it look like he was going to take at least three people with him off the plane. 
He knew the law would not mess with the parachutes because they wouldn't endanger a potential hostage. And he was right because they didn't. They thought about it though, but they didn't. So once the flight was fully airborne, Schaffner, the flight attendant, goes and tells the pilot what's going on. While she's gone, a woman by the name of Tina McLow, also a flight attendant on board, is seated right next to Cooper. So Mucklow would use a telephone at the back of the airplane to communicate with the pilots and the staff in the front of the airplane as well as the people on the ground. Now while ground crew scrambled to meet this man's demands, the flight, which w- would have only taken a short amount of time, was now circling around the Seattle airport, which was their final destination. But three hours later, yes, three, they finally get the money together and the rest of the demands ready. So the flight finally lands around 5.40ish, kind of. And when the flight landed, the plane was taken to a remote spot of the airport and Mucklow exited the airplane and collected the knapsack of money and the four parachutes. Now, when Cooper noticed that he received exactly what he asked for, he allowed two of the flight attendants, as well as the 36 passengers on board, to exit the airplane. Now, while on board the flight, before they they landed, some of the flight attendants, like I said, even described Cooper as a gentleman. Mm Mm-hmm. He even offered to buy food for the flight attendants. Now, most people that exited the flight didn't even have knowledge of what was going on. The passengers on board were kept very calm and had no clue what was happening, which is exactly the way Cooper wanted it. It wasn't his intention to cause havoc or panic. He was being sly. So they fuel the plane and they take off again. Left on board is Cooper and four flight crew members. Two fighter jets escorted the plane following on both sides of the craft. So Cooper demands that they fly the jet to Mexico City. Now on the flight, Cooper gave some strange demands that at the time made absolutely no sense. And even still, kind of don't make sense. But I think he was just trying to keep the remaining crew busy while he was doing whatever he was doing. One of the things he asked was that the captain fly below 10,000 feet with the landing wheels down. He wanted all the lights in the cabin off, and he wanted the staircase, which I believe is called the aft staircase, under the plane to be down and open while the plane was flying. So right away, the captain is like, there's no way we're going to make it to Mexico City with the fuel we have. So they convince him that they need to stop at least once before getting to Mexico City, and he agrees. So they plan to stop in Reno, Nevada. While in flight, Mucklow, the flight attendant, is still sitting next to him on the phone, and he's still holding the bomb in the briefcase on his lap. He then tells Mucklow that she needs to move to the front of the plane and that no one is to bother him or disturb him in the back for the remainder of the flight. Now, Mucklow claims that the last sighting she had of Cooper, 
He was standing in the aisle of the airplane, fidgeting with the parachutes, and looked as if he was going to jump. So she turns around and joins the rest of the crew in the cockpit and locks the door behind her. Three hours later, they make it to Reno and are about to land to refuel. When the flight landed, the crew went to look in the back of the plane, and to their amazement, Cooper was gone. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I see like like a 70s movie, you know, where they're like, oh, he's gone. <laughs> now, the staircase was down, so they assumed that he jumped off the plane, right? Where the hell else was he going to go? <laughs> now, see, this, this I didn't know. I didn't know that the staircase was under the plane and open. I just assumed he just disappeared off the flight. Kind of like a bad Twilight Zone episode, you know? But yes, the aft staircase was open. So, of course, he had to have jumped off. So, somewhere between Seattle and Reno, Nevada, they believe Cooper jumped out and landed on the ground. Now, that's a lot of land to cover to search for one individual. Around this time, they were nearing about 8 p.m., so it was already becoming very dark. Not to mention the weather. The weather was cold, windy, and rainy. The odds of him surviving the jump from 10,000 feet up are very slim. But that's boring, right? <laughs> so people assume, since no remains were ever found, that he had to have made it. So when they realize that he's gone and missing in action, the FBI takes charge of the flight. So they begin searching and were a little disappointed at the clues that they found because none of them had much value to helping find this man. The most odd thing about all of this is the four crew members in the cockpit did not see anything fall off from the plane. So if he had jumped, they didn't see him. But even crazier was that there were two fighter jets following the jet and they too did not see anything come out of the bottom of the plane. At this point in time, all they had to go off of was people on board, as well as the crew's description of the man. With that description, they drew their first composite sketch of who Dan Cooper may have been. The last time the crew spoke to him was over the speaker on board around 8.05 p.m. So because it's late and dark, there's no point in starting a search. So early in the morning, the FBI began searching ground in that specific area. Remember, it's a huge area. Now, they did estimate that around the time the crew spoke to him, he must have jumped off very shortly after, which would put him very near a specific area near Portland, Oregon. So early morning, the FBI begins their search on the ground. They searched above ground with helicopters and planes, and on the ground with police and search and rescue. A lot of the area they searched was wilderness and forests. It was also November, so the weather was cold and wet. They had a better chance of finding a needle in a haystack than Cooper in this area. But what they did know was it was very harsh conditions for him to have landed safely and to have survived through the night. 
Remember, he was just wearing a suit and a trench coat. After days of searching, no one found a single clue in regards to D.B. Cooper. So they continue searching, but they're coming up dry. They haven't found a single thing or had a single witness report anything. So at the beginning of December, they still have not found anything to go by. And they start to turn their attention to the dollar bills given to Cooper. So remember, he was given $200,000 in cash, all in 20s. So they turn their attention to the serial number and the money and pretty much ask every single human (laughs) to check their serial numbers on their money. They were even offering a reward of $25,000 to anyone who could find a $20 bill with the serial numbers they were looking for. Now let's talk about his name. So remember I said the alias, which they are assuming the alias he gave when he purchased his flight ticket in cash, was Dan Cooper. But a reporter, assuming the name to be D.B. Cooper, was the one who actually changed the name. Other newspapers in the media began to use D.B. Cooper as well because it was much easier to say. So if you ask me, that reporter could have affected finding the right person in the amount of time given. So his name was not D.B. Cooper, it was Dan Cooper. And to this day, he's still known as D.B. Cooper. All right, so they're looking for this money, right? With a specific serial number on it, but no luck. So the case comes to a halt. A big halt. Ten Years later, the FBI has pretty much considered this case to be unsolved, right? No. A boy who's on a beach in southern Washington finds bundles of cash amounting to just over $5,000. He turns in the damaged bills, and guess what? The serial numbers match. What the fuck? (laughs) Ten years later! But the FBI were only left with more questions than answers. So the money was found 27 kilometers from where they originally searched, which was way off flight path. So how did it get to southern Washington? One answer might be that some of the money fell into a river that then traveled downstream. But with the flow of rivers, it doesn't add up and therefore raises even more questions. Another question was the condition of the bundles of money. You see, the bundles were still wrapped with rubber bands. Rubber bands that could in no way have lasted 10 years. You've all seen old rubber bands, they break easily or they wilt easily. So for this money to have been buried in the sand all this time, the rubber bands would have been withered, but they were in excellent condition. So they estimate that whoever buried these three bundles of money did so only about a year before it was found. Any longer than that, FBI agents claim that the rubber bands would not have been as well preserved. So who buried it? 
They searched the area surrounding the small beach where the money was found intensely, but still no other clues were ever found. Now, the only problem I have with that story is I want to know more about the boy and I couldn't find much information on who the boy was or his family because probably would have looked more into that. So it's believed that Cooper had some type of military background and he was a trained paratrooper because he chose a military backpack out of the four parachutes that they gave him. To justify this more, while circling the Seattle airport, he mentioned that the McCord Air Force Base was only a short distance away. So either the military background, or they think he may have been involved with the CIA. The Boeing 727 is a specific aircraft used by the CIA to drop agents during Vietnam, which is why they were made with that stairway under them. So they think he knew he had a clear escape with this plane. But was it that he had the knowledge from experience, or did he just do his research pretty well? Nobody knows, so here we are. So here are details that we do know about Cooper. One detail is, he obviously knew the terrain very well. He knew exactly where to go, and apparently even went to jump. He was nice in a sense he didn't want to cause a major panic. He didn't want the people on board to know the plane was hijacked. And remember, he was very polite to the crew. He had some knowledge of the aircraft and flying and possibly military background. He concealed his identity with a pair of dark sunglasses and left very little evidence behind. And last, he was really intelligent but not smart enough. Now, it took some extensive planning for this hijacking, but in the end, if you think about it, obviously it didn't go the way he had intended it to go. It all seemed to work up until the point where he receives his demands, the money, the parachutes, and even the refueling of the jet to take off again. It seems as though he didn't really think past that point. I'm not sure if that's because his only intention was to just get back in the air and jump, or if he actually had a plan or a destination to go to. The only specific place and destination he mentioned was Mexico City. But of course, due to the fueling problems, he was forced to change that route and land in Reno, Nevada. And that's where he seems like he changed his mind and decided to jump flight ahead of the plan. Then we have to take into account the weather conditions, the way he was dressed, he was wearing a suit and dress shoes and a trench coat. If he knew he was gonna jump over wilderness or land, he definitely did not have the correct attire. He could have even asked for specific clothing as part of his ransom. So that's why I don't think he knew exactly that he was gonna jump where he jumped. Since this notorious hijacking, there have been other people who have tried to do the same thing. Some have even successfully jumped, but of course, they were caught. The story of D.B. Cooper is one that stays in the minds of many because it leaves us with no answers. We never find a body. 
We never find a single clue until some of that money is found buried on a tiny beach in Washington. And even then, it just makes us question more things of what could have happened to him. I think people like to imagine that he survived the fall and continued his life happily. But the reality, and what most people don't like to think, is that the fall could have easily killed him. But that still doesn't answer the question of who was Dan Cooper. Now, there were a few potential suspects, but most all of them lead to nowhere. First, we have Robert Rackstraw, who was suspected in 1978. Now, Robert, he knew how to make a bomb. He had military background, and he even had a criminal record. Robert had an uncle by the name of John Cooper, who, guess what, was a skydiver. Five months before the hijacking, he was discharged from the army for reasons unknown. He never denied that he was D.B. Cooper, but instead he would answer questions with, I may have done it or I could have done it, but he never says that he did or didn't. But Robert Rackstraw was way too young for what the crew described Cooper to have been, which was around his mid-40s. At the time of the hijacking, Rackstraw was only 28 years old. So therefore, he was never convicted. Then we had Kenneth Christensen. Now Kenneth looks the most like the wanted photo drawn from the descriptions given by the crew. His brother actually was the one who noticed the similarities. Now, Kenneth had a military background as well. He also worked for the Northwest Airlines as a mechanic. He was in his mid-40s at the time of the hijacking, and apparently on his deathbed, to his brother, he told him, quote, There's something you should know, but I cannot tell you. End quote. When Christensen passed away, his family found $200,000 in his account. Coincidence? Mm, I don't know. But his face was similar, but his body type was not. He was too short to fit the description. And the money was earned by selling most of his land. Now, I tell you this. <laughs> If any of you in my family on your deathbed say, I got to tell you something, but I can't tell you, I will kill you myself. Get it out. Get it all out. You can't take it to the grave with you, y'all. So I really wonder, you know, how his brother feels being left with that and nothing else. <laughs> so, of course, Christensen is never convicted. Then we have Richard McCoy Jr., now, this guy is a weirdo, but, well, you'll see. Now, Richard hijacked a Boeing 727, and guess what? He escaped off the aft stairway under the plane, just like Cooper had done. He used an alias, a fake explosive, and wait for it, even handwritten letters. He also asked for $500,000 in cash and asked for four parachutes. Richard survived the jump, but was caught two days later and sentenced 
45 years in prison. He never confirmed or denied that he was Cooper, but he was too young. He made way too many mistakes, unlike Cooper, like leaving the handwritten notes behind and way too many clues. But the biggest reason of all was that he was not Cooper because the crew from Cooper's hijacking said it looked nothing like him. So he was never convicted. Then there's Dwayne Weber. In 1995, Dwayne Weber became a suspect. He told his wife on his deathbed that he was Dan Cooper. What? He just straight up was like, guess what, baby? I'm Dan Cooper. Imagine spending your life with this man. (laughs) Now the wife tells of some interesting details. Now Weber had a bank bag similar to that given during the hijacking. He also had a knee issue that could have been from jumping from a plane. She remembers him having a nightmare about leaving fingerprints on the aft stairs. Um, what? (laughs) She says she may have even visited that beach location before where the three bundles of money were found. Dwayne Weber also had military background, and he matched the description perfectly. He also had a criminal background, and in 1971, guess how old he was? He was 47. Y'all, I'm sitting here with my mouth wide open. You can't see, but I am. (laughs) And I bet you are too, right? But of course, there's also some reasons why he's not D.B. Cooper. The biggest one being his fingerprints did not match any of the fingerprints found on the seat occupied by Cooper on the airplane. But keep in mind... The fingerprints were also not 100% found to belong to Cooper because there were so many fingerprints, different fingerprints on those seats. I'm coming at you right now to tell you that airline seats are disgusting and dirty. Just think about that, y'all. Next time you sit your butt down for that flight to Disney World, that that seat you're sitting on is disgusting. (laughs) And believe me, I've seen people clean planes to switch flights. It doesn't take an hour or two. They do not wipe them down. They don't. (laughs) So please, be careful. But to be honest, that's kind of dumb. The man is literally saying that he is Dan Cooper. I don't know what other reasons to not look into him more. I mean, I don't know. He's saying he did it. Why not believe him? So, I don't know. I'm still suspicious of Dwayne Weber. And I'll put these, I'll try to find photographs of these men I'm talking about and put their picture up along with the drawing of the suspect. And you guys be the judge. Now, the last suspect to come out was William J. Smith. He became a suspect in 2018 fairly recently, y'all. Now, he had a military background, and in 1971, he would have been 43 years old. He matched the physical description to the T. Now, Smith was a yardmaster for a railroad company 
that went bankrupt in 1970. Now, this could have been motive because the airline companies were taking all the business from railroad companies. Now, the only issue with William J. Smith is he lived most of his life in the northwestern states. Remember, whoever D.B. Cooper was had great knowledge of the West Coast. All of these men had qualities that made them suspects. But a lot of these men also had reasons to not be convicted. If you have a case with little to no evidence, it's very difficult to convict someone. A case such as this will never be solved. I don't think this case will ever be solved due to the fact that there is little to go off of, which leaves room for people to create what they think happened. And at this point, so much time has passed and so many stories and so many suspects have come up that it's almost impossible and I do not think they will ever, ever solve it. Now, in 2016, the FBI decided to close the case, stating that there wasn't enough evidence during the investigation to solve it. I think it's exciting to create a what-could-have-happened story but in reality, if I'm giving my opinion on what I think happened, I don't think he survived the incident. Now, the money that they found on the beach, now that is strange. And the serial numbers match to what the FBI was looking for. So yes, that is weird. But if he landed somewhere in the wilderness, and let's just say someone found the money, or a few bundles of the money, I think I would hide it. Just like I think someone else did. Remember, they said it was just over 5000 That's a lot of money. I would have buried it in the ground and maybe, maybe, <laughs> tell one of my nieces or nephews where it's hidden and let them know that let some time pass and then whenever you're ready, take out the money and spend it. Right? I don't know, maybe it's just me. <laughs> so in reality, no, I don't think he survived. I think I agree with the FBI that he had a great idea and it almost worked. But in the end, I think he got scared and he jumped ship a little too early. Or he jumped plane. <laughs> now imagine walking through the wilderness way out in the middle of nowhere land and you find a skeleton hanging from a tree by a parachute. D.B. Cooper had to have landed somewhere. Somewhere is a body attached to a parachute. And if he survived the fall and the trek out of the wilderness and out to where he wanted to go, then wow. He deserves to live a free life in my opinion. So that's the story of D.B. Cooper. Those are all the details I found. I told you there was a lot. <laughs> uh, for sure, I definitely didn't know there were that many suspects that they looked into. And again, I just, I don't know. Dwayne Weber sticks out the most to me. Uh, the only reason, again, was because they said his fingerprints didn't match those of Cooper's from the airplane. Then again, they didn't even know exactly which fingerprints were Cooper's. They just found a whole bunch of different ones. So is that enough evidence to prove 
that he wasn't D.B. Cooper? I, I don't know. I mean, he literally said on his deathbed, Hey, honey, I'm Dan Cooper. Like, what the, what the hell? <laughs> How are we just going to ignore that? You know? Then again, if he was old and dying of old age, old people say some weird things, you know? And mentally they go through issues, so I don't know. I don't know. It's just a little too weird for me. But yeah, that was all the details I found on D.B. Cooper. It's a great story. Um, one of the world's greatest mysteries, right? <laughs> if you have any information about this case that I missed out on, because I'm telling you, there is a lot out there. And the one thing I didn't do for this case was go to Reddit. And I love Reddit. love going to read all that stuff. And I'm curious and wonder what people say about this so if you guys read reddit go look that up and let me know what they say or you can email me or write on our facebook group or on instagram and let me know what you think what do you think happened um do you think he survived do you think he knew exactly what he was doing did you think his plan go the way it should have or are you kind of like me like no chance he didn't make it the weather sucked I think he just gave up in the end, right? Because you have to think, like, he wants to get to Mexico City. They're just going to pull over real quick and get some gas. And he's just like, no, 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 no. I'm not falling for that. So it's either get caught and go to jail forever or jump out of the plane and land somewhere, maybe. You know? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Again... It's a good conversation piece, so bring it up at your next family dinner. Alright, I do want to give a huge thank you uh, to Lemino, L-E-M-M-I-N-O, who created this short documentary where I got most of my information from. He did a great job, and for as a confusing story as this, he really put it into perspective for me in a way that was very easy to understand. Most of this information he gave was the same information you hear on any documentary about D.B. Cooper, but the way it was all put together, it was easy to follow and right to the point. So go check him out on YouTube. His documentary he created about D.B. Cooper is about 30 minutes, and he talks a little bit more about some minor details that I left out. I hope you guys enjoyed that little mystery. Um... A little change from all the murder and gore in the last few cases. <laughs> Again, huge, huge thank you to those of you who still are listening since day one. It means a lot to me. I see the numbers. I see that it's the same people, so thank you. Don't forget to share this episode with somebody who you think will enjoy it or somebody who might know more information about it and let me know you can always email me at creepy smith for you that's the number four y-o-u at gmail.com or send me a message on social media anywhere remember on instagram i always like to post some pictures about the stories i'm telling i really want to try to get that going on facebook as well twitter Eh, not too many people use Twitter anymore, but I'm going to continue posting there. Maybe somebody will follow me. <laughs> but yes, I hope you guys enjoyed that. I sure did. 
Like I said, I have a lot coming up um, the next few weeks, all the way to the like mid-June. So I'm going to try my best to get these stories up and going for you. Uh, maybe this weekend I'll even try to record a few and have them ready to go and queued up. Yes, gracias por escuchar y nos vemos pronto. Creepy Chisme is created for entertainment purposes only. Thank you for listening, and don't forget, stay creepy!